I'm so glad that God is not like us. Aren't you? Aren't you glad that Jesus is not like us? I mean, what a terrible world we would live in if God were like us. It would be a world of condemnation and judging and hypocrisy. I am so glad that God is not like us. And here's one of the many reasons why God is not like us. God looks at the heart. And what do we look at? We look at the outside. Oh, to be sure, we think that we know what's happening in people's hearts. We love to assume what is happening in people's hearts, but we don't know jack squat. How arrogant of us to assume that we know or ever could know what was happening or what is happening in someone else's heart. But we all do it. We all do it. You do it all the time. I do it all the time. And that's why I am glad that God is not like us. God looks upon the heart. All that we ever see, all that we can ever see is the outside. And when we begin making assumptions based on outer appearances, then we get in trouble. But oh, how easy it is to make judgments on outer appearances. It's just so easy to make assumptions, isn't it? Well, this happened to me once at the church that I pastored in Texas before I came here to Grace. This actually happened numerous times in my life, but this is one of my favorite times. So, you know me by now, Grace. Sometimes I grow my hair out, a little messy and shaggy. Sometimes I grow a beard. Most of the time, I'm unshaven. Most of the time, I look pretty grungy. I heard that muffled amen back there. (laughs) I know who you are. I'm okay with that muffled amen. So it was one of those seasons in my life where I was growing my hair and beard out, and frankly, I look like Charles Manson, okay? I can admit that. And our church had this private Christian school that was a part of our ministries of the church there. And after one of the school events one night, I was locking up, and this lady asked if I could let her into the building because her grandson needed to use the restroom. And my family was with me, so we all walked into the cafeteria, and her grandkid uh, went to use the restroom, and so we were waiting on him to finish, and we're just standing there. And this lady asked me, so are you the custodian here? Are you the janitor for the church and school? Now, if you know me, I I got a kick out of this. I wasn't offended at all. I got a kick out of it because I really believe Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.27 where he says that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So she says to me, so are you the custodian here? Are you the janitor for the church and school? And I replied, like a good southern boy with manners, no, ma'am. I'm the senior pastor. And she literally jumped back two feet. I promise. You know those passages where Paul says, God is my witness? Well, God is my witness. That lady, that old grandma, literally jumped back two feet. And my wife, Heather, is a witness. She was there and saw it with her own eyes. I guess senior pastors aren't supposed to look like Charles Manson. I guess that look is reserved for janitors. I don't know. 
The truth is that Jesus probably looked more like Charles Manson than we want to believe or want to admit, minus the swastika tattoo on his forehead. I tell you that story because we all do this. We all make judgments based on appearances. We all assume what's happening in other people's hearts. We all actually believe that we can actually know why someone is doing what they are doing or what they are not doing. And when we do that, we prove that we are nothing like our Heavenly Father. We prove that we are nothing like Jesus. We prove that God is not like us. And I'm so glad that God is not like us, aren't you? And Peter was definitely glad that God is not like us human beings. And that's why what he will try to get across to his audience. So open your Bible if you're not there to First to Peter. Peter will tell his audience, which now includes us, that God is different. That God is holy. The triune God is holy. And therefore... We should be different too. And so our big idea today actually flows out of our sermon title. So I'm going to give you our sermon title and then give you the big idea. Here's the sermon title. When someone really irks you, and here's the big idea, give them grace. When someone really irks you, give them grace. Now, you may be scratching your head, and if you're familiar with this passage, I'm wondering where I get it out of this passage, but let's remember the context. For 12 verses, Peter has talked about the grace of God that has come to sinners like us. And last week, we saw in verse 13, Peter spoke of setting our hope fully on the grace of God that would be revealed when Jesus comes. So there's this past grace that we've experienced, this future grace that we look forward to, and in between that time, Peter is going to tell his readers over this lengthy section here that we need to give grace to others because we've received that from God. Peter's writing to a group of churches who were, one, undergoing severe persecution because they were believers. Two, they were enduring all kinds of trials and hardships. And three, they were experiencing relational strife in the church, in their marriage, and in their families. In fact, The remainder of chapter 1, well into chapter 2, is just one long section where Peter is dealing with the family of God and how the family of God is supposed to put up with one another. We'll find in the coming weeks that they struggled to love one another and that they were actually slandering one another and that they were being hypocrites. Therefore, Peter knows that there are people in these churches that are bothered by other believers. Can you imagine that a Christian bothered by another Christian? That's so crazy, isn't it? He knows that they need help. He knows that they need to be reminded of the gospel when someone really irks them. And that's what he is going to do over this entire lengthy section. He's going to remind his readers of the grace of God so that they will go and do the same to other people. Give grace to those who don't deserve it in their lives. Peter wants them to imitate God and not the world. He wants them to be different. So look at verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Holy Lord. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Peter's whole point in this section is to remind his audience that they have been liberated by the gospel, that they've been set free and they now have a new master, they have a new father. And he highlights their new identity and the new family that they now belong to when he mentions that they are children. Right there in verse 13 it says, as obedient children. Now, some translations translate it as as obedient children, and I don't think they get Peter's point here, but there are some translations that actually capture his point. The Greek here is literally children of obedience. It's a genitive, meaning you are children of obedience. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that we are children of obedience? That obedience is our parent, our father. What does that even mean, Peter? Well, Peter is using a Hebrew idiom here. He's saying that they are children of obedience, that their new parent, if you will, is obedience. So what in the world does this mean? I think Peter is stressing what we already saw in verse 2. I think Peter is stressing once again the obedience of Jesus. If you remember from a sermon several weeks back, I mentioned that we are saved through what theologians call the active and passive obedience of Jesus. We are saved through Jesus' active obedience, his obeying the law of God perfectly for us, and we are saved through his passive obedience, meaning he took the curse of the law that comes upon every human being, he bore that himself on the cross. That's his active and passive obedience. It's his perfect, sinless life that he lived fully obeying the law of God and secondly it's his passive which means passionate like it's not that he just was really passive and laid back it means passionate like the movie the passion of the Christ it's his death that he died for us so we are children of obedience meaning our parent is now Jesus' obedience for us. We are no longer children of disobedience, children of Adam's disobedience, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. We are now children of obedience. Our new parent, our new family is the family of God with God the Father as our new father. And what gets us into this new family is Jesus' obedience for us by being united to his life and his death. So our new identity is Jesus. Our new identity is his obedience for us, not our obedience for him. And that's good news. Aren't you glad that your identity is not wrapped up in what you do or what you don't do for God? Your identity is not wrapped up in what you do for God or what you fail to do for God. But this is where so many of us live. Your identity is wrapped up in what Jesus has already done for you, his obedience for you. So your identity is not wrapped up in how you mess up all the time. Your identity as a believer is not how you blow it all the time. Your identity is not how you fail repeatedly all the time. And your identity is also not how good you are. Your identity is not wrapped up in what you do for God. Your identity is not how you are known as the prayer warrior. 
Oh, that guy's the prayer warrior. That's not your identity, Christian. Your identity is not wrapped up in, oh, that girl, she reads the Bible. I mean, she really reads the Bible. That's not your identity. That guy's the missions guy. He loves missions. That's not your identity, Christian. Well, that person cares about social justice. Yeah, that's not your identity, Christian. Your identity is wrapped up in what Jesus Christ has already done for you in his obedience Not what you do for him or what you fail to do for him. And because we are now a part of the family of God and our new identity is that we are children of obedience, children identified by being in union with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, because of that, we are now called to act like our new family acts. That's why Peter says there, In verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In their old life of sin, when sin was their master, Peter's audience used to act differently. They didn't know Jesus. Their former passions included how they acted and reacted to life situations. And some of the former passions that Peter has in mind here, he will actually address in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter's readers were struggling with evil thoughts toward one another. Can you believe that? Another Christian having an evil thought towards another Christian? I know you can't imagine that. They were being deceptive. Can you imagine a Christian being deceptive? They were hypocrites. Can you imagine a Christian being a hypocrite? Who's ever heard of that? They were judging one another. Another Christian judging another Christian? I've never heard of such a thing. They were envying one another. They were slandering one another. Can you imagine another Christian slandering another Christian? Well, of course you can. These are some of the former passions that Peter wants them to put away, to not be conformed to, to not be shaped by, to not be molded by. So instead of acting like the world, instead of acting like they used to before they came to Christ, Peter tells them to be different. Peter is basically saying this, hold on guys, we don't act like that anymore. We're different now, we're a part of God's family. We respond with grace We trust, we love, we support, we care, we value, we humble ourselves. We aren't selfish, we don't demand our way, we don't clamor for attention. We used to do the opposite, but now we are in union with Christ. We're a people of grace, we're different now. And now that we have experienced grace, God's unmerited favor, his unconditional love, we are called to be different and to offer that grace to others. Now, none of us would ever do this perfectly. Which is why we need to hear this all the time. Because none of us can ever be perfect and, and perfectly offer grace in all of our relationships. But we're called to do it. When we are hurt, we are called to offer grace. When we are misunderstood, we are called to offer grace. When we are cheated, we are called to offer grace. In our former passions, what would we do? We would retaliate. We would harbor bitterness. We would slander. We would gossip. We would hate. But now that we have tasted grace, we're called to offer it to others, to people who don't deserve it. Why? 
because Jesus offered grace to us in the gospel call. Look at verses 14 through 16 again. As obedient children, children whose parent is now the obedience of Jesus, as obedient children, as children of obedience, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter wants his audience to remember where they came from. They came from what he will later call in verse 18, a feudal way of life that they had inherited from their forefathers. Peter is saying that you belong to a new family now. You've been adopted into the family of God. You're a part of the family of God. Now to be sure, they still had the same earthly families, the same parents, the same brothers, sisters, cousins. They still had the same creepy uncle who always gets hammered at family reunions. But now they belong to a new spiritual family, the church, the people of God, the family of God. And in God's family, we do things differently. We don't do them perfectly, but we do things differently than those of the world. Those children of disobedience and children of wrath, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Those people, Jesus says in John 8, 44, who have the devil as a father. We do things differently. Peter knows that every family is different. And they do things differently and they act differently from other families. When I grew up, our new neighbors moved to the backwoods of Oklahoma from Watertown, New York, and they were Italian, and they did things differently. In fact, their name was Tucci, T-U-C-C-I. It's a nice Italian name, Tucci. And they moved that to where all the rednecks are, and the rednecks are like, two C's is a C-H sound? Well, we're going to call you Tucci. So their name became Tucci, T-U-C-C-I. And it just kind of stuck. So the Tucci family, or really the Tucci family, the Tucci family did things differently from the Magnus family. The Tucci's cooked with wine. Cook with wine? What? The Tucci's drank wine. And they made their own homemade pizza. That was amazing to me as a six-year-old because our pizza came from Sammy's Pizza or Pizza Hut and it came in a cardboard box. But the Tusis made their own homemade pizza. For me as a six-year-old, poof, mind blown. <laughs> our pizza came in a box. They made theirs from scratch. But the Tusis may have had one up on the Magnus family in the area of pizza and pasta and all things Italian, but we had them licked when it came to iced tea. Our tea had way more, far more sugar in it than theirs. They didn't know how to make good southern sweet tea, but we did. In fact, in the south, we never call it sweet tea because the assumption is that all tea is sweet. All tea is sweet in the south. You don't ask people if they want sweet tea because all tea is sweet. You just say you want some tea. And we don't call it iced tea either because all tea is iced and full of sugar. Anything else is just brown water. <laughs> Who wants to drink brown water? Not this southern boy. So on my little dirt road in Sequoia Little Farms where I lived, there were two very different families doing things very differently. And that's what Peter is saying here. 
We belong to the family of God, so we are called not to act like the world anymore. We're called not to conform to the passions of our former ignorance. Back then, we didn't know any better before we came to know Jesus. We were ignorant. We were blind. We were dead in sin. And then God caused us to be born again, Peter says in verse 3. We were adopted into his family, and so now we are different. We're in a new family. Of course, we still struggle with sin. We still sin. We are sinners. Our new family is full of sinners. We're a mess. We have issues, just like every person in this world. But now, we are in the family of God, whereas before, we weren't. So in one sense, we're like every human being in this world. We're messed up like everybody else. We sin all the time like everybody else. But in another sense, we're different because now we belong to God. Now we belong to God's family. And that's what it means to be holy. To be holy, the Greek word, I mean the Hebrew word kadosh and the Greek word hagias, it means to be different, to be set apart to something, And that is exactly the context of Leviticus chapter 11, which Peter quotes right here. In verse 15, Peter quotes Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, when he says, But as he who called you is holy, so also you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus chapter 11 is all about the Israelites being different from their Gentile neighbors. The laws found in Leviticus chapter 11 enabled Israel to be a distinct people in the land of Canaan. So Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, gave them laws that told them what they could and could not eat. And the Lord did this because he knew it would keep them from assimilating into the pagan cultures around them. Because what do human beings normally gather over? We gather over food. We gather around food, around meals. So the Lord knew that if Israel started hanging out with pagans and eating what they ate and having fellowship with them, then they'd eventually start acting, thinking, and then worshiping like them. So the Lord tells Israel that there are certain foods that they can't eat. So when your average unbeliever in the ancient Near East approached an Israelite and invited them over for dinner, the Israelite was always saying, oh, we, we can't eat that. We can't eat bacon. We can't eat ham or pork chops or rock badgers or bearded vultures or falcons, or short-eared owls, but we can eat grasshoppers and crickets. All of that's in Leviticus 11, what they could and could not eat. So they essentially did not associate with non-Israelites. These laws were graciously given by the Lord and were designed to keep them from becoming like the world. But when you read Israel's history, you see that they found other ways to become like the world and to worship other gods. But they were called to be different to act differently, to think differently, and to even eat differently. And Peter knew this chapter of Leviticus well. I think he probably had Leviticus chapter 11 memorized, which is why when Jesus appears to him in Acts chapter 9, and he sees all these unclean animals on a sheet, and Jesus tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's like, no way I'm not eating that, because I see a rock badger on that sheet, and your word says in Leviticus 11 that I can't eat rock badgers. He knew Leviticus 11. 
He knew what he could and could not eat according to God's law. But he also knew that God gave them this rule so that they would be different. Therefore, Peter is telling his readers in verse 15, but as he who called you is different, you also be different in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be different, for I am different. That's what it means to be holy, to be different, to be set apart. So we are called as believers to think and act differently in God's house and in God's family. We offer grace in this family, or we're supposed to. We forgive in this family. We assume the best in this family, or we should. Why? Because we're family. In this family, when someone offends us, our Heavenly Father pulls us close and whispers in our ears, give them grace. That's what we're called to do in this family, to give grace to people who don't deserve it, to react differently from how the world reacts, to offer forgiveness to people who don't deserve it, to love people who are unlovable. But make no mistake about it, we are a family, and families have issues, right? Does your family have issues? Drama? Of course it does. Every family has issues. Every family has some drama. Each family has their own share of drama, even in the family of God. And Peter knew that the churches that he was writing to had some serious issues. As we'll see in the coming weeks, they struggled to love one another. They were slandering one another. They were being hypocrites, and they had malice and evil thoughts towards one another. They struggled to submit to their government. I'll let that hang for a second. They struggled to submit to their government and to their employers. They struggled in their marriages and in their families. They struggled to live in unity and harmony in the church. They struggled to pray. They struggled to serve at church. They struggled with humility. It sounds like us, doesn't it, Grace? Sounds like they needed to remember, and we need to remember, that when someone really irks you, we're called to be different and to give them grace. They needed to remember that this is how God wants his children to act. Again, not perfectly. Only Jesus is perfect. I'm not saying focus on your behavior at all. I'm just saying the call is there because God has been so gracious to us that we would be gracious to other people. And in verse 17, Peter is basically going to tell them not to worry about how their brothers and sisters are living. He wants his readers to give grace to one another in the family of God. Peter wants his audience to focus on Jesus and not how each family member is living. Peter doesn't want there to be any tattletales in God's family. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter doesn't want his audience to lose sight of Jesus by focusing on how other members of the family are not behaving well. Peter wants his readers to understand that they are each individually dealing with a heavenly father who deals with each child separately. 
And while they are on this earth, journeying through this world as an exile, they are called to be different from the family of the world. They are called to fear the Lord, to live as exiles who fear the Lord. And what does it mean to fear the Lord, to live your life in reverent fear as an exile while we wait for Jesus to return? Ray Ortland is very helpful here. He says this, we never have to fear that God might turn on us and hate us. The gospel is the end of that fear. But here is a new kind of fear, a good kind. God our Father, verse 17 says, is our impartial judge. Do you see the present tense judges? It's not a future judgment. It's what God is doing as our Father in our lives right now. He doesn't play favorites one child over another. He judges impartially. He doesn't flatter He doesn't tell us we're doing well when we aren't. He deals with us honestly. God our Father does so many things for us. He comforts us. He provides for us. He protects us. He also judges us. It's his love at work at all levels of our need. He doesn't laugh at our sins just because we're his children. We need our Father to train us, coach us, discipline us. He does it personally with each of us. Do you see in verse 17, each one's deeds? Just remember this. In judging us, our Father doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need in order to keep growing in eagerness and holiness and tenderness. So God will deal with you, Christian, but he will not give you what you deserve. Amen? That's his mercy. He gave Jesus on the cross what you deserve. What he will do is give you what you need in order to keep growing so that you can give grace to others. And part of this process is remembering that we are exiles, meaning that we have not arrived in heaven yet. That means none of us are perfect. We have not arrived yet. We are exiles on a journey to becoming finally conformed to the image of Jesus one day. So that means we're not perfect right now. But oh, how easy it is to think that we have arrived and how easy is it to focus on how other people have not arrived. Isn't it so easy to focus on how other Christians are doing? Isn't it easy to focus on what other Christians are doing or not doing? It's so easy. I did it this last week and the week before and the week before. I focused on what some Christians, some of my brothers and sisters in Christ, were not doing. And what happens when we do that? We slip into pride. So-and-so hasn't been in church. And that person is doing this, and that guy's doing that, and he's not doing this. And we start acting like kids, like children. Because what do kids do? They tattletale. They point out their siblings' faults and errors and mistakes. They tattletale. They have a gift. Mom, he didn't pick up his toy. Mom, he didn't do his part. Dad, she didn't do her chore. Dad, she didn't make her bed. We become like little kids, little bad kids, when we point out all the sins and failures and mistakes of others. When we lose sight of our Savior, we actually begin to fight over our behavior. 
we start obsessing over how other people are living in contrast with our supposed goodness, our supposed obedience. And we become full of pride thinking we have all of our stuff together. And we don't. Nobody in the universe has their act together. Only Jesus. And yet we all, we all get filled with pride and look down on others. You do this. Don't lie this morning. Fear the Lord. Don't lie. You're in church for crying out loud. You want to lie in church? There's a story in the book of Acts where some people died for lying in church. So don't you lie this morning. You elevate yourself all the time and you look down on others and you pass judgment. You elevate yourself and look down on others. You hypocrite. You do it all the time and so do I. We all do. And what we should be doing is fearing and focusing on the Lord. What we should do is give them grace. Peter doesn't want his readers to nitpick their brothers and sisters in Christ, their brothers and sisters in the family of God. He doesn't want them to become like little kids and tattletale on each other. He doesn't want them to become filled with, with pride and think they have their act together. And that's why he says in verse 17 that we, call, we each call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God deals with each of his children individually. He judges, present tense, each believer and deals with each believer without input from his or her siblings. God doesn't need, God doesn't want tattletales in his family. He doesn't want us running around trying to be the police, monitoring everybody's spiritual condition. We're not here to call each other out all the time. We're supposed to do what Peter says here, call on our heavenly father who judges impartially each person's deeds. I'm called to call out to my heavenly father and he says, son, I will deal with you. Don't worry about everybody else. Instead, what we often do, Christians do, is run around calling everybody out on their sin when we should be calling on our heavenly father who judges impartially each person's deeds. Now, this doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to how people are living. It doesn't mean that we can't exhort and rebuke and correct. If someone is living in unrepentant sin, we're called to go to them. And by unrepentant sin, I mean they say something like this. I don't want to change. I know this is wrong. I know God's word says this is sin, but I'm not giving it up. I am not changing. If someone is living like that, then yes, we're called to intervene. We're called to go to them and to love them and to call them back to Jesus. It's called church discipline. We're called to help them get restored to Jesus. But how many Christians run around trying to be the fruit police? Is the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Always running around, trying to keep people in line. That's not grace, that's law. Grace connects you to a person, to a redeemer, to Jesus, not to rules. And that means we don't have to look at others to see if they're staying in, staying in line. Because our focus is supposed to be on Jesus, our older brother, according to Hebrews 2.11. We're not supposed to focus on what our brothers and sisters in the family of God are up to, what they're doing or not doing. We're supposed to focus on Jesus. Understand this. 
Grace frees you to quit being a tattletale. Grace frees you to quit being holier than thou. Grace frees you to quit trying to be a kingdom monitor. Grace frees you to quit being a part of the fruit police. Steve Brown is helpful here. I love what he says. If you use the law to judge others, go ahead. But don't assume that your judgment mimics the judgment of God. If you use the law to judge others, go ahead, but don't assume that your judgment mimics the judgment of God. The good news is that Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, and our correctness. Religion has made us obsessive almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us to a dance, and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right. And if we're, if we, we're in step and in line with the other soldiers, we know a dance would be more fun, but we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we keep marching. Making other people holy is God's job, Grace. It's not ours. Please let me see that. Making other people holy is God's job. It's not our job. So holiness, being sanctified, being set apart to God, being different, it will never be a reality for us unless we care more about Jesus than we do about holiness. Holiness will never be a reality for us unless we care more about Jesus than holiness or getting better or seeing others get better. Holiness will never be a reality for you if all you do is focus on, am I getting better? Am I getting better? Are they getting better? Are they getting better? Holiness will never be a reality for you until Jesus becomes your focus. Most of us just want to be holy so that we can feel better about ourselves and feel that we are better than others. Please let me say that again. Most of us just want to be holy so that we can, one, feel better about ourselves, and two, feel that we are better than others. I want to be a godly husband because I want my wife to go to a small group and say, my husband's so good, he's such a servant, he loves the Lord, because I want people to think good of me. I want people to think that I'm great. Is that the reason that I want to be holy? Sometimes, yeah, because I want other people to hear about my goodness wrong so we fall into the trap of making sure we're staying in line and others are staying in line we've turned the christian life into this march of soldiers ten hut get in line soldier ten hut start marching we've turned the christian life into a march of soldiers and it's supposed to be a dance we're supposed to be free, grace, and grace is what makes us free. Grace, God's unmerited favor to sinners like us who don't deserve us, who don't deserve his grace, that is what makes us obey. Grace is what motivates us to obedience. Grace is what motivates us to holiness. Grace is what motivates us to think and act differently. Is the Christian life a war? Yes. The Bible clearly paints that picture. We're in a battle against our own sin and the forces of evil in the, spiritual war, in the spiritual world, but part of the way that we do battle is by dancing, by being free, by really believing the radical nature of grace. 
That there, there is nothing you can ever do to make God love you any more or any less. That you are absolutely accepted in his eyes. That the Christian life is not about getting better. It's about keeping your eyes on Jesus and focusing on what he has done for us. Are you free today? Are you marching like a soldier? I gotta stay in line. I gotta keep my kids in line because I want people to think I'm a good parent. I gotta keep my kids in line. Keep my family in line, everybody in line. March, march, march. And we're called to a dance. A dance sounds a lot more fun, doesn't it, than being on the battlefield? So let me ask you today, do you really believe the radical nature of God's grace? Do you really believe that you are forgiven? Do you really believe that you are loved unconditionally? Do you really believe that you are free? Do you really believe that you are covered and imputed and credited with the alien foreign righteousness of Jesus that you could never produce on your own? Do you believe it? Do you really believe the gospel today? If you do, then it should change your relationships. It should start changing your relationships. Not perfectly because we're sinners, but our relationships should be different They should be marked by grace. They should be marked by forgiveness. They should be marked by love. If you really believe the radical nature of grace and someone really irks you, like your spouse really irks you, I know that doesn't happen in this church, but, and don't elbow your spouse right now. If you really believe the radical nature of grace and someone really irks you, your spouse really irks you, your kids really irk you, your boss really irks you, your neighbors really irk you, your coworkers really irk you, someone in this church really irks you, if someone, anyone in your life really irks you and you really believe in grace, then you should do for those people who really irk you, what you should do for them is give them grace. But they don't deserve it. Neither did you. See, religion says, I have to have it all together for God accepts me. Religion says, I have to have it all together and and nobody else has it together like me. Religion, what it does is it makes you judgmental, turns you into a hypocrite. Religion makes you think an eye for an eye. Gotta pay them back. Religion puffs you up, tears other people down. Religion tattletales. Religion makes you a bad kid. And grace comes along and changes all of that. And that grace often comes through preachers like Peter and through preachers like Robert Capon who said this, I think good preachers should be like bad kids. They ought to be naughty enough to tiptoe up on dozing congregations, steal their bottles of religion pills, and flush them all down the drain. The church, by and large, has drugged itself into thinking that proper human behavior is the key to its relationship with God. What preachers need to do is to force the church to go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross and then be brave enough to stick around while the congregation goes through the inevitable withdrawal symptoms. That's what Peter is doing here. He has tiptoed up on his readers, stolen their bottles of religion, and he has flushed them down the toilet, and he loves them enough to watch them go through their withdrawals. Peter wants them to know that proper human behavior is not the key to having a relationship with God. The key to have a relationship with God is about resting in the obedience of Jesus. 
Resting in his life of obedience to the law and resting in his atoning death on the cross. It's about the word of the cross, which is what the Lord's table is all about. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table today where we will see visibly, we will taste physically and tangibly that God gave grace to us when we didn't deserve it. The elements at this table today are whispering in your ears, if someone really irks you, you need to give them grace because that's what God has done for you in Christ. And that's what this table is all about. Let's pray. Father, you're so merciful and gracious. You come and you give us what we don't deserve. You have mercy on us. You give us your grace because you're so kind and merciful. And yet we've twisted all that And we've turned inward and we've made the Christian life about us. It's all about your son, his obedience, his active and passive obedience being on display in our lives as we continually come back to it and rest in it. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us of our sins because they are many. As we come to the table, God, help us to find strength for the journey ahead. Let this be a means of grace in our life to go and forgive the people that really irk us. Let this meal be a means of grace that we can go and give grace to other people, especially those who don't deserve it. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.